Over the years, I have heard all kinds of unbelievers, haters of God, atheists, people who just do not like Him, do not like His Word, and do not like His people, blame God for all of the ills, all of the problems, all of the wrong, all of the wars, all of the deaths, all of the bad things in all of the history of the world. It's all God's fault. Quite frankly, I really get sick of hearing it. And I get sick of them. They do not know the Bible. They do not know the God of the Bible. And yet, in their wisdom, they're going to tell others that God is the source of all problems and wickedness, evils and wars and deaths. They are wrong. They are totally uninformed. And they have no business seeking to spread their lies. Now in this, I am reminded of the introduction in the book, that great work by J.I. Packer, Knowing God, where in his introduction he cites an illustration from another book by a John McKay, and John McKay pictures in his work persons sitting on a Spanish balcony. So I want you in your minds to kind of get this picture in, in your head of these persons, many persons, several persons, sitting on a Spanish balcony. Why Spanish? I don't know. But it's there on this balcony that they overlook the road in front of their dwelling. Right in front of their balcony, there is this kind of main road going right through their town, right through their village. And what they do is look down on this road and comment about the road and about the passers-by, the travelers on this road. He called these the balconeers. Now, I want to borrow this scene, and I want to add in a little John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and my own particular twist. And what I want to do is take from this scene these balconiers looking down upon the road and looking at these travelers. Now, I'm saying that as in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, these travelers are those who are Christians and they are on their way to the celestial city. They know where they have already been. They know where they began on the road. In fact, they know what they were like before they got onto the road. And they know what God did to forgive them of their sins, to save them, and to set them on that narrow road that leads to glory. They know what God did in their lives and how they have been changed 
forever by God. And they know what God says because He has given them a road map. They know who God is. They know what God says. And they know what God has taught them in their lives and in their hearts. And they shall never deny Him and never turn from Him. And they have seen by their lives changed and by their experiences that they've had on this road that they are going to glory, the celestial city. Now, meanwhile, you have these balconiers looking down on these travelers passing by, seeing them as they go. And the balconiers speak first about the road itself. Why, what is this road? Where does it go? Where does it come from? We have no idea whether this road doesn't dead end just two blocks up the street. This road may not go anywhere. They are fools for being on this road. For after all, the balconiers have never been on the road. They're just on the balcony. They have never experienced the road. They don't know where it comes from and they don't know where it goes because they've never been there. And yet they dare talk about the road and how bad the road is. You see, the inference is we're fools as Christians for following that narrow road that Jesus spoke about. But they don't only comment on the road. They comment on the travelers who are on the road. And they criticize the way the travelers walk. <laughs> look, at, look at them walk. They don't walk right. They're not walking the right way. We don't like the way they walk. Everything they're doing is wrong. They don't even walk right. They criticize what the travelers say. Because they're right there. They can hear what they say as they go by. And they say, they're fools for what they believe. They're fools for what they say. They're uneducated. We don't like them. We don't like what they're talking about. We don't like what they're saying about this Jehovah God and the celestial city to which they are going. They are wrong. They are uninformed. And we don't like it. And they even criticize them for being on the road in the first place. What are they doing on this road? Why are they here? They don't like the way they walk. They don't like what they say. And they don't even like the fact that they're on the road. They're fools for traveling on that road. Who knows where it leads? They're lost. But they're the ones who have all of the knowledge and wisdom about God and about His ways. They are totally uninformed, for they have never been on the road, and they don't know the one who built the road. They don't know the one who put those travelers on the road, and they don't know where they're going to heaven. And yet this is what these unbelievers are like in our day. God is the source of all problems. God is the source of all wars. They don't know what they're talking about. 
This is what we're seeing as we look at the Scriptures regarding our God. Did God order the destruction of unbelievers and wicked men who rebelled against Him in the Old Testament? He certainly did. Destroy utterly the Amicalites. Destroy the Pezzites and the Jebusites and all those other ites and the Philistines. Yes, they were at war and God did order them to be destroyed and even help the armies of Israel to defeat them. They were unbelievers, wicked pagans who hated God, who hated His way, who wanted to kill His people and God therefore judged them for their wickedness. However, with that said, this very same God, who is a God of justice, as we see in the Scriptures, is a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God of forgiveness. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to this time, Psalm 130. After having seen in our study entitled The Fundamentals of Forgiveness, the essence of forgiveness, that is, why do we even need to be forgiven? And we look through that at the whole matter of our sin. Last week we began to explore the next major area in our study, the existence of forgiveness. What God says, what is said of God, what God did and what God does today in order to forgive men. And we began last Lord's Day by seeing God or Christ's alacrity to forgive. You remember the word? Alacrity. It means eagerness. Willingness, quickness to forgive. And this, we see, is how God is depicted in Scripture. So far, we only got to one text last week, and that is the text I read for you a few moments ago, Psalm 103. And we saw from Psalm 103 last Lord's Day the picture of the God who pardons our iniquity. He speaks of pardoning all our iniquity, redeeming us from the pit, which is a picture of hell. And He does so in loving kindness. He is pictured in that text as compassionate, and He does not deal with us according to our iniquities, but rather He deals with us in mercy. And it says in that text that He is as a father having compassion on His children. He is a father who loves and forgives even as we would. And He removes our transgressions from us as far as the East is from the West. That's God. Yes, He is just. Yes, He is holy, mighty, and powerful. 
but He is loving and merciful and kind and forgiving. There is, as we often say, a balance in an understanding of who God is. There are many facets to God, many attributes, many ways that He presents Himself in Scripture. And to look or to focus only on one thing, to bring about an evil result, is wrong and it is sin itself. We need to know all of what God is like and how He presents Himself in all of the Scripture. And so we come today to another text, Psalm 130. I want to begin by reading and looking at this text from verse 1 and understanding that this here is a declaration of forgiveness from God. We saw a picture of God pardoning our iniquity and here is a declaration of His forgiveness and pardon. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Now the author of this psalm is uncertain. Some believe that it was written by David after his own sin with Bathsheba. Others believe it may have been written by Ezra or some other. But for certain we do not know. But this we say, the psalmist begins by crying out to Jehovah God. He cries out to you, Jehovah. And he says that he cries out of the depths. What does that mean? Sometimes we we think about that as Christians. We, We talk about that. We may even mention that in our prayers. We come to you out of the depths, O Lord out of the depths of our heart. Well, it could have to do with sin. That's why some attribute this psalm to David. They say that he had reached the bottom, as it were. The depth, the the very dregs, the very bottom of the barrel because of what he did with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. I've reached the depths, God. And I cry out to you from the depths of my sin. Have mercy on me. Now any true and honest Christian in this room will know that event in their life. There comes a time in all of our lives if we are honest with God that we know that we are sinners and we fear and we feel as if we have reached the bottom I can't get any worse. How can I commit such sin against God? How can I go on committing sin after sin against a holy God? And finally, you reach up your hands and you you cry, Oh God, have mercy on me. Out of the depths, I cry. You, And so it may indeed be speaking of one who comes to him according to his sin. And when we as Christians sin, we know that separation from God. 
and we feel we're in the depths. Or, some suggest that it may be speaking of persecution. Out of the depths, because people are against me. People have come against me in persecution, and people don't like me for this reason or for that reason or I'm really feeling it at work and I'm just down and it's not going well in my house and my my husband doesn't understand me or my wife doesn't get me and and you just feel like you've reached bottom things couldn't get any worse but let me put a little bit more on that what about how we as Christians in general who truly love God and who love His Word and, and seek to uphold the historic gospel, the true gospel of God given through Paul and the apostles and revived in the Reformation era and we seek to bring the true historic gospel and what do we get from other so-called Christians? Mocking. Why, you don't use programs and gimmicks and Sunday school things to get people to come to your church and you don't do everything the way every other church does and you teach this and you don't give invitations. Sometimes I have been, as it were, in the depths, crying out to God, wondering if God will ever hear the prayers for the advancement of His gospel here in this North Tampa Bay area. And you cry out from the depths, God, honor your word. Bring people who want truth more than stories. You cry out from the depths to God as you see his word being trampled and you want him to be honored and glorified. I would say both of those could be applied to what the psalmist is saying when he says, Out of the depths I have cried to you. But know for certain, the one that he is crying to, if you look at the text and you see the word Lord, it is capital L and small cap O-R-D. That is Jehovah. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Jehovah God. He is addressing the God that you and I today seek to worship. He is addressing the God that you and I love as He has been revealed in the Scriptures. And He calls on God to hear His voice. It's a great prayer for prayer meeting. Lord, let Your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Jehovah, hear what we're saying. Hear us as we cry to you. It's a great song. It's a great plea. And it's a great thing to keep in our hearts and our minds as we come to God in prayer. Be it in your own closet at home or be it here at church on Wednesdays when we gather specifically to pray and to glorify and to praise God in prayer. Hear our prayers, God. And He does. Isn't that wonderful? He does hear the prayer of His people. It is a tremendous 
plea to God. But now, he gives this amazing statement in the form of a question in verse 3. It's what we sometimes call a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is more of making a statement rather than actually asking a question. It's in the form of a question, but it really makes a declaration. As he says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, he's not at all suggesting that God doesn't know your iniquities. He's not saying, oh, if only you knew how bad I am, Lord. That's not what what the terminology means. God knows every single one of your sins. He knows how you act in church, kids. He knows whether you're attentive to Him and to His Word. He knows your heart. He knows your sins. He knows all about you. God knows everything. All the sins you commit. All the sins I commit. And you can't hide it from Him. Because He knows. That's not what this text is saying. Fact of the matter is, this text is saying that God does indeed know, but He doesn't mark it. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. Now that word mark in the Hebrew is shamar. And it is to keep track of, to watch, to wait for. It has to do with being critical upon examination. Some of you may remember that if you were in the service, I know a couple of you here may have been in the service. I was in the service. And you'd have to, in boot camp or in basic training, you had to make your bed, your locker had to be just right, your clothes had to be folded just right. And you stood there kind of fearing because you knew the sergeant was going to come along and find something wrong. He had to find something wrong. That's the idea of what this word is. Critical examination. Watchful with a vindictive eye. In other words, he just wants to catch you doing something bad. I think some of you actually may have that problem, that thought in your heart. We had a dear lady who attended church here for years who actually had a problem with that. It was almost as if she felt that God was just looking for every sin she would commit and just waiting to condemn her and judge her for it. Perhaps some of you have a heart like that. That God's just, I know he's going to goof up. I know he's going to sin. I know it. I can't wait. Boy, then I'm going to give it to him. That's exactly what God does not do. If he should do that, then who could possibly stand? If that were the case, 
no one would be able to make it through Judgment Day. And that's what he's talking about when he says, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Stand what? Stand in the judgment of God. If God is just looking at you, counting up every sin, going, oh, here's another one. Here's another one. Oh, boy, here's another one. Boy, I got a long list. You got, oh, man, you're going to hell. That's not our God. That's not the God of the Bible. In fact, it is the opposite. And that's the point that the psalmist is making. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is a contrast given here between a mean, vindictive, harsh God and a forgiving God, a loving God. Tell me the truth. Don't you know people who believe that the God of the Old Testament is like that mean, vindictive, harsh, judgmental, murdering, killing, evil God? But the God of the New Testament, oh, he's loving. That's Jesus. He's good. No, that is heresy. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. One God revealed in three persons, the triune God. But he doesn't change. In fact, in the reading today, in the providence of God, Daniel read, he changes not. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament is not a mean, vindictive, harsh God. No, he is a God who is willing to forgive sins. This psalmist, whether it was David or another, recognized his own sin. He knew his own sin, and whether that was the depth from which he was crying out, he cries out to God and pleads with God, Lord, don't mark all my sins. He knew he was guilty. He knew that if it weren't for the forgiveness of God, he could not stand. But he says, praise God, in the text, there is forgiveness with God. You know, people, you yourself cannot cleanse yourself from your sin. The psalmist knew he was guilty, and so do you. Everyone here in this room knows that they are a sinner. I have great confidence in being able to say that. Every one of us knows our sin. We're guilty, and God is just to condemn us. In fact, look, if you would, please, at Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah, chapter 2. Look at this picture that he gives. Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 22. Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord God. 
It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how much you wash and bathe and try to cleanse yourself. The stain, he says, and that's important for what we're going to see in a moment. But the stain remains. You cannot cleanse away your iniquity. Now back to the text in Psalm 130. If God should take account of that, none of us would be able to stand in the judgment. There's nothing you could do to cleanse yourself. He's just in condemning you. However, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There's forgiveness with God that he may be feared. This is that contrast. Left to yourself, you are lost with no hope. Before God, you are guilty. For a just and holy God, you're guilty. But we're not left to ourselves. He is a God who forgives sin. You, there is forgiveness with you. The same God, Jehovah God, there is forgiveness with you that is through his grace and mercy now this is the god spoken of in the old testament and we know as we have come down into the new testament era that this forgiveness is done through the sacrificial work of jesus christ on the cross that's what the cross is all about that god forgives sin through the blood sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. But there's forgiveness with God. And that's what those people were doing on the road. They had been cleansed of their sin, washed pure in the blood of Jesus Christ. And they're traveling down the road towards heaven. Now on the road, their feet will get dusty. And day by day, They will need to confess their sins and be cleansed. But they know there is forgiveness with God. You know there's forgiveness of your sins through Christ and His sacrifice. Now notice what he says. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Now in Psalm 103, you may recall that over, well, several times, he mentions, for those who fear you, there is forgiveness, there is loving kindness for those who fear him. It said that several times in Psalm 103, even as we read it a little while ago. But that's not so much of what he's talking about here. Yes, indeed, when you are saved, You have this fear of God, this reverence, this awe of who God is. You ought to have that. We need to have that. You need to have that in church. That needs to be brought back into the church today. A fear and reverence and awe of who God is. Saved people will have the awe of God. God will not be a joke. God will not be entertainment. God will be feared in the true church. And there will be awe 
Yes, there will be joy and love for him, but there will be awe for all that he has done. That's fear of God. But this actually says something a little different. This says there will be forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And I believe that first one would work and would go well with the text. However, there's another element to this. There's another aspect to this that also holds true. And I am thankful to some of the commentators who brought this point out. That he is saying that without forgiveness, there would be no need for fear of God. For, if you think about it, if there is absolutely no hope of forgiveness ever in God, do anything you want. Who cares? As a matter of fact, I'm going to read, as one put it, if there were no forgiveness of sins, there would be no more fear of God among men than there is among the devils. Think about it. For There is no forgiveness, no possibility of forgiveness from the devils. And he even says, they might dread, they might tremble, but no godly fear. And we know from the text that the demons know who Jesus is. The demons know and they tremble. But that's not the same thing as having fear, reverence, and awe for God. They do not fear God. They hate God. They rebelled against God. And so what is said in the text is if there were no forgiveness, we just might as well be like all those demons. Who cares what we do? For there's no forgiveness anyway. We're doomed. Yes, if God were to strictly mark sins and not pardon it at all, there would be none who would fear him, for all would be condemned and cut off by him. But there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. And as another one has put it, there is forgiveness. It is when you fear to offend God that you will then strive to please God. When you fear to offend God, you will then strive to please God. You know who that quote is by? Me. All right. It's true. When you realize that God is a forgiving God, And when you recognize and realize His forgiveness of your sin, then you will strive to be holy and godly for fear of offending your gracious God. We strive for holiness. We strive for righteousness in somewhat out of fear for our God. We know it displeases Him, and we do not want to displease Him. It is also love for God. We love Him, and we do not want 
to displease him. So this then I say to you is not necessarily that dreadful fear. It is speaking of that which we were talking about a few moments ago. Awe and fear and reverence for our God. And because we have this towards Him, we do not want to displease Him. Because He has forgiven us and there is forgiveness with Him, we have awe and respect and love for Him. It is to those who fear God that they will be the ones walking on that road. The ones walking on that road to the celestial city are the ones who fear God and wish to please Him in the way that they walk, no matter what the guys in the balcony may say. Our desire is to please and to honor God who has forgiven us for our sins. Now let's look down a little bit and uh, kind of conclude our look at this psalm. As he says a little further down, I wait for the Lord, verse 5, my soul does wait, and in His word I do hope, or do I hope. We have His word, and we remain in His word, and we seek to have hope in Him according to His word. Then he says in verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. Have you ever pulled guard duty at night? I've done that. I couldn't wait for the morning. That's what it's like when you're on watch. You can't wait for the morning, but you just wait looking for the sun to rise. That's what the psalmist is talking about. Lord, I'm waiting for you. I'm eager. I'm anxious like a watchman awaiting the morning. And then he says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. And with Him is abundant redemption. Redeemed from your sins. Forgiveness. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Redemption from all our sins. Now, what was Israel? Who is He talking about? Israel, you know, was the nation of Israel coming down from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then we have Israel. Jacob's name changed to Israel. And we have the nation of Israel who were given the law of God and the ways of God. They were given even the king, Saul, and then David to rule over them. And so this is the Israel that he's speaking of. But who is Israel now? Who is biblical Israel Today, and I say to you without equivocation or any hesitation that you are the Israel today. The church is the fulfillment of God's promises, of all God's promises to Israel. We are the new Israel. You'll be getting that in Sunday school in depth in the months to come. The church 
is Israel now. Look at what Paul said to Galatians and in other passages, many other passages. And so I say to you that this promise is for us. As a church, we hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him is abundant redemption. And He will redeem us from all our iniquities. Imagine that. Again, we see that word all. He will not miss one of them. He will not miss one sin. He will redeem us and pardon all our iniquities. This is a great God. This is a loving God. And so I don't care what those guys on the balcony say. They don't know God. They do not know the God of the Bible. And how dare they try to blame Him for all the ills and the trouble. The problem or the cause of the ills and the troubles and the wars and death is not God. It's sin. And God forgives sin. That's the message of the Bible. I hope to get to another text today, but my time is gone. Hear me, though. The God of the Bible is shown to be compassionate, kind, merciful, and forgiving. This is our God today. Amen? Let's pray.